Welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour, Episode 16. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me, of course, is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Greetings, Glenn. Christina. And hello to you, Christina, and welcome to everyone to the Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I'll be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy looking for ways toward optimal health. How you been, Christina? Absolutely super. It's been a very, very interesting time on the planet right now, isn't it, Glenn? It certainly is. There's lots of energies going in a lot of directions. You know what's been really exciting for me is I've been, I've been running into um, a lot of uh, uh, young medical students that are doing their residencies. And what's been really exciting is the way that they are speaking about what used to be alternative medicines. They are now uh, really uh, focusing on acupuncture and energetic healing. And it's just, it's just been really magnificent this week. I've run into like two or three of them. And it's like, wow, this is like a whole new paradigm shift that's starting to happen into holistic medicine. I think it's been happening for many years. It just happens on the rate of geologic time, uh, mm. except for those that really want it to happen, then it's even slower. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you sleep? That's an interesting way to go about it. <laughs> How did you sleep last night? Ah, How did I sleep last night? Oh, I think pretty good. I have a wonderful Tempur-Pedic mattress now <laughs> that contours my whole body the way it should be. So yeah, I really good. And, and I, I, I believe that we work our 15, 16 hour days. So it kind of like puts us out by the end of the day. How about you? Um, I love my sleep every night, no matter what it is. I always have a good night's sleep. Uh, but I sleep, I think, longer than most people. In fact, speaking of that, do you know uh, how long the brown bat sleeps at night? The brown bat? Yeah. Each night. Wild guess, five hours. 19. The uh, African elephant, how long do you sleep? How long do you think that uh, animal sleeps at night? At night? <laughs> or whenever it sleeps. <laughs> or whenever. I was going to say, well, the brown bat is like... Right, and I said five point. hours. That was five waking hours as opposed to sleeping hours. Right. The ephilum, huh? What does yeah. the ephilum do? Um, oh, 10 hours? Uh, three. And take a guess. You know that we sleep about eight hours. The human sleeps about eight hours. Mm. Take a guess what animal sleeps needs about the same amount of sleep as the human. A monkey. The pig. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The pig sleeps about the same amount of hours yeah. as we do. The reason I'm asking all these questions is because uh, our special guest today is a sleep medicine doctor. Uh, he's a colleague and a friend of mine, Dr. Andrew uh, Binder. He's uh, a specialty consultant in the Santa Barbara Sleep Clinic, and he's the medical director of the Ventura uh, Sleep Disorder Center. Mm. And I would like to introduce you to him now. Christina, I'd like you to meet my friend, Dr. Andrew Binder. Hello, Dr. Binder. Welcome to our show. Thank you. You honor us. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to it. <laughs> Andy, uh, usually as the medical guide, I like to tell our viewers uh, 
kind of the direction that we're going to take today. And so I would like to share that with them for a moment. First, we want to get into a little bit of a discussion about your journey, how you decided to become a healer in general, what were the influences, uh, what you did in healing. And then you took a, a leap into a specialty that was just forming at the time. This is another example of fields in medicine where specialties come up because people need them. Uh, and then I want to get into maybe a little bit of the history of sleep, talk about some sleep disorders, and then I want to end with some current uh, diagnostic processes and maybe some newest cutting-edge treatments. How does that sound to you? Sounds fine. You lead the way. Excellente. Uh, we'll, we'll all go on this journey together. So tell us, uh, we look to, at, in this program, we love to find out what is the heart and soul of the, of the healer? So tell us why you got interested in becoming a healer and give us a little of your story. Okay, well, I started out um, in college uh, majoring in English literature and thinking that I wanted to uh, be a professional musician. Uh, for, uh, uh, fortunately, I was always good in science. They, they, that came easy to me science and math, um, I soon realized that I wasn't good enough to be a professional musician, so I uh, thought about teaching English literature, and uh, one of my professors uh, told me how many years it took him to undo the damage that graduate school in English literature uh, did to him. So, uh, so I, I guess I took my, uh, uh, I took my third choice and uh, went to medical school. But actually, my uh, older brother had uh, four years ahead of me. He was in medicine, and uh, I, th and, uh, I basically, uh, I guess, followed in his footsteps, all took different directions in medicine. So uh, after, after, uh, after uh, college, went to medical school, and then I did uh, seven years of training in pulmonary and became a, a lung specialist and critical care doctor. Um, along the way... Uh, a new disorder became uh, evident, um, and it was snoring and sleep apnea. When we first saw this, we didn't realize what the cause was. We thought that most of these patients were very heavy, and we thought they were just, it was too much work to breathe. It took us a while to realize that um, they were having obstruction of their upper airway. At any rate, because I was a lung specialist, I thought that I needed to know more about it. I drove up to Stanford to take a course in the uh, mid-80s, mid-1980s, and I'd been on call the weekend before, I'd worked all week, and I literally almost killed myself uh, making that drive from Santa Barbara to uh, Stanford, Palo Alto. And the introductory lecture was given by uh, the founder of our specialty, Dr. William DeMent. Uh, he really founded the Stanford uh, sleep disorder center and uh he just gave a 30 minute lecture and talked about excessive sleepiness and i realized that i was always excessively sleepy because i was I, I, I was sleep deprived and it was uh it was an epiphany for me i i literally realized that nobody in my profession really knew anything about this and it was very important and it was at that moment i decided i was going to uh, become a sleep specialist uh, and that's what I did. I, I continued to do critical care for, for 20 more years, but um, 
uh, along the way, I also uh, taught myself sleep medicine, read the textbooks, and uh, I became, um, I think I was the 519th uh, doctor to take the uh, the American, the uh, American, what is it, the American Board of uh, Sleep Medicine Boards, and um, and uh, I had the sleep center that I founded in Santa Barbara was the 17th accredited uh, freestanding sleep center in the country. So that was uh, that's how I got started. I started from the ground up, never, and um, and uh, it's been a, a great trip ever uh, since. I gave up critical care um, about 20 years. Uh, let's see, no, 10, 12. Sorry, uh, about 15 years ago. Any thoughts of going back into uh, music? Um, it's, I, I'm embarrassed to say that my, my, uh, I was a guitarist. Um, I have a beautiful guitar that I've had since I was uh, 13 years old. It's a kind of a collector's item. And, um, and I, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been playing, uh, very much, but I do have, uh, I do have plans, uh, of actually, uh, getting back into it again it's just so consuming when i when i when i play music it, it's pretty much the exclusion of everything else so uh when i was raising a family it got increasingly difficult to take the time and you know work and and play music so uh but uh i think it's some of it's still there there are so many great musicians out there i'm i'm, I'm really uh, grateful that i i didn't delude myself and try to be uh compete with uh these other people who are out there <laughs> yeah Will, William Dement wrote, uh, what was it, The Promise of Sleep? Yes. yes. I, think, I think he, uh, I read a statistic in his book after you suggested I read it that said uh, that at, at one time they did a study and they said one out of four people fall asleep at the wheel of their car. You were talking about your drive up to Palo Alto or up to Stanford. Uh, uh, one out of four people, which made me think that if you're on a on a freeway that has four lanes, and you're awake, then it's possible that one of the other three people may be falling asleep in a moment as as you drive. It's uh, it's absolutely true uh, that this is a very scary thing when you're on um, if when we're on the 101 freeway here in Santa Barbara, um, driving sometime during a time when there's no traffic. In L.A., there's always traffic, but in Santa Barbara, we have times of the day we don't expect traffic, like on a weekend. And uh, when all of a sudden the freeway is totally blocked up, I will predict and guarantee that you will hear sooner or later that a truck driver fell asleep at three or four o'clock uh, in the morning, and it was a single vehicle accident where he fell asleep, went off the road, and um, uh, maybe killed himself, damaged a lot of property, tied up the road, and this happens all the time. So it's a very scary, it's a very scary uh, thing. And I think people underreport how sleepy they are. Uh, so yeah, it's a big, it's a big safety uh, national public health problem. Give us a, uh, give us a brief history of sleep medicine. And when did we start learning about sleep? When did it become uh, a little more official. I mean, we've talked about sleep since, uh, you know, ancient times. There's lots of literature, and throughout history, there's there's literature, there's stories, there's poems, there's limericks, uh, all sorts of things regarding sleep and sleep and health. But when did when did we actually start the science? And tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, um, I probably should have uh, prepped more for this, but I think that in the 50s, when uh, Dr. DeMent was a uh, research fellow working at Stanford, uh, he was part of the team that figured out that dreams occur during REM sleep. And uh, that was kind of the beginning in the interest of sleep. But it was more. Would you, would you excuse me, would you quickly tell everyone uh, REM sleep? Sure. Sorry, rapid eye movement sleep. Thank you. Um, we basically we now know, or we we have um, classified the stages of sleep as non-REM, or REM being rapid eye movement sleep, and 75% uh, of the time we sleep is in non-REM sleep, and sleep is a very active and organized structure. Sleep is um, it's a function of the brain, and it's probably to help protect and preserve the brain. But um, so we cycle every 90 minutes, ideally, we cycle into uh, progressively long periods of rapid eye movement sleep, during which our brain is very active. We're dreaming, the, the metabolism of the brain is very high, but we're totally seeing images and, and things that don't exist. They're just in our brain. Our, our muscles, interestingly, are paralyzed. Our muscles are paralyzed, and that's to protect us so we don't act out our dreams, which would be dangerous. So when you see your dog or pet kind of whimpering and barking and look like he's trying to run, um, he is, uh, he or she is. The dog is dreaming about running, um, and they can't actually run because their, their body is paralyzed. And so that's just that twitching is just a little bit of a breakthrough. And once they figure that out, um, they began to realize that um, <clears throat> that uh, in growth and development, uh, an infant, a newborn, spends 50% of their time in the equivalent of REM sleep and 50% in non-REM sleep. And as we move to our 20s, it gradually decreases to about 25% of our total sleep time. And that stays pretty constant through our lifetime, except, um, except with medications which affect things. And um, we don't... Um, I think once they started realizing that their sleep was not just turning a switch off and and that there was active processes going on and there was an organization to sleep, they began to uh, study it more. But it really didn't become a medical specialty until uh, probably the late, the mid-70s. And that's when um, we started realizing uh, sleep apnea was a medical issue. And that probably... Um, up to that time, I think that neurologists and psychiatrists were heavily into sleep, but it was a fringe specialty. And I think when the pulmonary guys got involved in it, and it was something very concrete, like you stop breathing and, and you may die, then uh, people started paying attention to it. And I think that's really what launched uh, 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 interest, and it's what the way a lot of us got into sleep. I will admit that the sleep apnea, while it's a major the major portion of interest in sleep, I find all the sleep disorders, which we'll talk about, touch on, uh, fascinating. And um, and for a pulmonary guy who had didn't do a lot of neurology since uh, in my early years, I had to relearn a lot of things and, and and plus new things. So it's been a for me, it's been incredibly stimulating. And um, sleep affects everybody. I mean, it's sleep. Every animal sleeps. Um, and uh, I think I might just add that. In our 24-hour uh, culture, where where the lights are always on and people people are always working all shifts, um, 
you, people get the idea that sleep is optional or you can train yourself to do without it. And that's really a myth. Um, animals sleep. And for animals, it's dangerous to sleep because they're out in the wild. And when they're sleeping, they can get eaten. So uh, they develop very elaborate uh, protective mechanisms to protect their time sleeping. They haven't evolved to, to do without sleep. Instead, they've figured out a way to preserve the time so they can sleep. So it's, a, it's as necessary a function as eating or drinking. Yeah, that's true. And, and much of the information, it seems, that we have about sleep is watching animal behavior, uh, I believe. Tell me about, tell us about the, you mentioned the uh, 70, 75% uh, non-REM and REM. Just so that everyone has an example, can you just kind of draw a mental picture for everyone of the entire night cycle of, say, an eight-hour sleep where you go to sleep and then you go from a, you know, a beta to an alpha to a theta and then you come back up again and go through a cycle with us so that we have an idea of what sleep happens? Sure. Well, we define the sleep stages, first of all, as you were mentioning, by the brain waves. And brain waves are, they're just little ups and downs, oscillations, and the amplitude, that is the height of the brain waves, and the frequency, or how wide the waves are, really defines what the waves are, and the sleep stages are defined as the predominant waveform. I won't go into the details of the waveform, but non-REM sleep, deep non-REM sleep, which comprises about 20-25% and of our sleep, and 50% is kind of intermediate non-REM sleep. Uh, we, when we first, when we're awake but relaxed, we're in, uh, the brain waves are alpha waves, and and as you go to sleep, the brain waves slow down and the amplitude gets higher, and we transition into we used to call stage one, now it's called N1 for non-REM one, and then we quick quickly transition into um, stage two sleep, and that's where we spend 50% of our time. In the beginning of the night, we spend about, we um, go into deep non-REM sleep, which is called now N3, or stage three sleep, and these are where you have the deepest sleep. It's characterized by what we call delta waves. This is like your brain in general anesthesia. You are like really asleep, and this is, everything does slow down, and that is really seen mostly in the first part of the night, the first third, first 50%. As we get older, our ability to achieve and maintain a deep sleep actually does decrease. That's one of the aging processes. Um, and then we cycle up back into that, and then we go into our first REM stage in about 90 minutes, anywhere from 75 to 90 minutes. And it's relatively short, maybe 15, 15, 20 minutes. And then we cycle back again. And then we have about four or five of these cycles. And we usually end up the second half of the night where we spend most time in lighter on-REM sleep. That's stage two. And we usually wake up if we're in sync and a reg with a regular schedule. We usually wake up from a dream stage. And, and the last REM period, uh, it, the dream stage, is the longest one. And that's usually the one dream that people remember they had. In other words, you won't remember your dreams unless you wake up from the dream, and you won't be able to retain what you're dreaming about unless you make an effort. In other words, you'll remember your dreaming, and it's very vivid, but it, but if you don't think about it and try to tell somebody or, or make an effort to remember it, suddenly it's gone. It goes from volatile memory into, uh, and it's gone. 
Whereas you, if you make an effort to try to remember it, you'll uh, you will be able to remember it and put it into your uh, put it into your um, uh, more long-term storage, as it were. But um, each non-REM and REM, they seem to have different functions, and we can only speculate, and it is speculative what's going on. I have my own theories about it, but um, so it's really um, it's it's people who say they dream a lot probably don't dream a lot. They actually wake up during their dreams, and people say they never dream, just sleep through the dreams, and they wake up out of non-REM sleep, and they never remember their dreams. But almost everybody will have both non-REM and REM sleep. Mm. So is is the stage of the REM the REM stage is that um, is that the last stage for everybody? Well, it will be the last stage if you have a um, a regular schedule and you're waking up spontaneously or because your circadian rhythm is well synchronized. So that would be where you would awaken. Uh, and REM sleep, contrary to what people think, REM is actually a very light stage. The transition from REM sleep to wakefulness is instantaneous. So as a physician, Glenn, you'll probably remember this from your years in, of, uh, of being on call. Um, if, if the hospital calls you and you're, you're dreaming, you'll make the transition from the dream stage to wakefulness very quickly. You literally hit the ground, your brain hits the ground running. Um, if, however, they call you early in the night when you're in that deep stage three or N3 sleep, um, you, will, you will sound to the nurses like you're drunk. Um, you'll be confused and it'll take you a while. There's a sleep inertia. It takes a while to wake up. And in fact, I, uh, the, uh, the director of the intensive care unit at our hospital um, the nurses complained to me about one of the heart surgeons. They thought he was drinking, um, that he had, had, because he sounded drunk when they when they called. But what? Uh, fortunately, I was actually a sleep doctor at the time, and so I knew this. So I asked about what time they called, and I figured out that they called him probably within an hour of him falling asleep, and they caught him in deep sleep, and he just was having a hard time. Um, uh, it takes a while to wake up, and um, I can remember from my training waking up and. Uh, responding to the nurses and then kind of going back to sleep and suddenly remembering that what I said was totally inappropriate and began <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and taking corrective action. So, um, so it does have its consequences. Uh. Oh my goodness. Well, it's, it's quite uh, interesting because before, you know, working in the film industry, um, especially in Asia, there's, there's no overtime and sometimes we just have to go for 36 to 40 hours straight. So you would try to get your naps or your sleep in between every shot that they were doing. And I could remember saying to, to everyone, we sort of trained our bodies to be able to sleep in between. So whether it be for the 20 minutes or the 45 minutes, I found the minute that I ever went over 30 minutes, I would hit that deep sleep. And it would be the worst thing to try to get me out of. And once I hit that, you have to sort of let me go for the next three hours, or, or I'm I'm toast. You know? Your observations are exactly right. In fact, we tell people um, if they're going to take a nap because they have to, and they should, if they're especially if they're driving and they're too sleepy, I, I'd rather them pull over and take a short nap. But I tell them to set their smartphone for 20 minutes because otherwise it'll be hard to wake up. And that's called sleep inertia. So you're absolutely right. And you don't train yourself to sleep. It's not, 
you fall asleep, when you're sleep deprived, the, the pressure to fall asleep is so good, uh, so high that you will be able to fall asleep. I get a lot of, um, uh, when I had a lot of veterans, especially years ago when we still had the World War II veterans um, around, and they would, they would be very sleepy, and they would say they trained themselves in the Army to be able to nap any time, and they thought that's why they were able to nap all the time. Of course, when they were in, the, in, the, in World War II, they were napping because they had to, and that's the only sleep they got. Uh, they were sleepy now for other reasons, but they were, they were thinking that it was just a holdover from their time in the, uh, in the military, and uh, uh, there are many holdovers from the military, but uh, the sleepiness uh, does not hold over. Uh, uh, that's because they have developed a sleep disorder. In fact, that's my rule of thumb. One rule of thumb uh, is that if you're excessively sleepy, that is, you get sleepy when you're driving your car uh, or when you're watching TV or reading a magazine when you want to be awake, um, if you're that sleepy or if you are sleepy, then you have a sleep disorder by definition. It may be insufficient sleep, but that's sleep disorder. That's not um, – and uh, so then you have to investigate why are you sleepy. That's probably, to me, that's the most important symptom of a, of a sleep disorder is excessive sleepiness. Uh, it's a manifestation of some primary sleep disorders, and it's a consequence as a secondary fashion of, of other sleep disorders. Can you give us a definition and a reason for sleep, and then we'll go on into some of these sleep disorders? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that... Uh, somebody said, I like the way somebody phrased it. One of our, uh, one of my colleagues in the field said that sleep is of the brain and for the brain. Um, we sleep, as I say, it's a necessary function, and it probably is to restore and maintain brain function. My theory uh, is that uh, the brain needs to recover from all the activity needs to restore some of the uh, the neurotransmitters and restock as it were. And the body, the muscles and everything else also need an opportunity to slow down and uh, recoup, uh, rebuild, restock the muscles with glycogen and so forth. So there are some processes, endocrine things which are linked to the to sleep. I think that also REM sleep and to some extent non-REM sleep probably is also part of the learning process. Um, learn new things, um, these pathways in the brain have to be, have to be established in a more permanent fashion. And I think that we're, we're constantly remodeling our brain. Um, and I think a lot of that goes on um, uh, during sleep. So the consequences of, um, of not sleeping is probably impairment in your cognitive function. And I think that's a big area which uh, needs to be recognized more, that, that uh, if you don't sleep, you're not only sleepy, but often you, it changes your mood and it changes your ability to think, changes your memory. So, uh, so simplistically, if you don't sleep, you're sleepy and you're impaired. Um, but I think that uh, it's, you know, it's very complicated. It, it's a very complicated uh, uh, process. And when we don't sleep, in addition to the cognitive impairment, there are metabolic consequences. Uh, it, it activates all the stress hormones and affects, and really probably affects everything from immunity to, um, uh, to, uh, you know, to heart attacks, stroke, and so forth. So it's, it's actually, that's why I think we're beginning to understand it's a key risk factor uh, in, in our general health. 
Yeah, very important uh, on all levels. Would you give uh, us just a moment or two on the chemistry of sleep the and waking? Why? What makes us go to sleep and what makes us wake up? Where's that balance? We found that out, haven't we? Yeah, I think um, I think that there. This is actually very. Impo it's a very important question. I'll try to uh, explain it clearly. Um, we as we there are two processes. There's the drive to sleep, which is entirely driven. We call the homeostatic drive. Basically, the less you've slept, or the further away it's from the last sleep episode, you build up a drive to sleep, the homeostatic drive. Uh, and this is um, uh, so. So uh, by the evening, well, I should say by night, before the time, by the time to go to sleep, you have built up a drive, and this is called a homeostatic drive, and it's probably uh, the primary chemical is adenosine. Uh, adenosine is, um, it's, as you know, you've heard, everybody heard of ATP and ADP and so forth, uh, uh, the, the energy compounds. The uh, well, the more we're up, the more adenosine builds up in our system, and the direct antagonist, chemical antagonist of adenosine is coffee. So that's why coffee and caffeine works. It basically is an inhibitor and a blocker and antagonist of the homeostatic drive to sleep. So we have sleep deprivation promotes a drive to sleep. Opposing that is the circadian mechanism. Circadian means circadia, around the clock. It's the 24-hour internal clock that we have, which unfortunately is not exactly 24 hours. Now, I don't know why it's not 24 hours. It's because the Earth's uh, rotation was different when we were cavemen and prehistoric, and um, but it's a little longer than 24 hours. And this cycle is in the part of the brain called the um, suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN, we call it. Um, and this is where our clock resides. And basically, it's a clock that is like, I liken it to um, a 24-hour hourglass. <laughs> in other words, imagine a, an hourglass that takes 24 hours to empty, and then you have to turn it over. And that's kind of what's going on. There's, a, there's a, some RNA transcription and protein synthesis, which I won't go into, but it takes 24 hours, and it starts over again. And uh, this clock, because it's not 24 hours, um, if we are left to our own device, don't have any structure to our sleep, um, you will tend to sleep in a little later every day. Now, people whose clock runs at 24 hours, they are close to 24 hours. They have a fairly regular thing. They don't, they're morning people. People whose clock runs slow, they're night people. They're night owls. And if they don't reset their clock every morning by, you know, of daylight, they get into trouble. So the circadian mechanism actually tries to alert us. It actually tries to keep us awake. So as we're getting more and more sleep deprived during the day, our, our circadian mechanism, our core body temperature is gradually increasing and is trying to compensate for the fact that we otherwise would be very sleepy. So depending on how effective your circadian mechanism is, you can actually work a full, you know, 16 hours during the day, and then your circadian mechanism about an hour and a half before, an hour, hour and a half before your, um, your bedtime starts to pull back. Your core body temperature drops, and then the sleep drive starts to take over and let you go to sleep. That's if everything is worked, working right, and if your, your rhythm, your circadian rhythm is properly aligned with your life. 
that doesn't happen that often these days in our modern uh, in our modern culture, and that is the source of a lot of sleep disorders. So, two op- competing drives: one that makes you sleepy, and one that's trying to wake you up. And if they're aligned, it works fine. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't work fine, the chemicals for that on the circadian mechanism are are less well known. We think it's probably related to um, uh, one of those chemicals that, uh, that we know is called orexin or hypocretin, and that's a uh, that's the chemical that's missing in people with narcolepsy. And uh, that's so that being um, elucidated. And the other chemicals that keep us awake or that wake us up are are the uh, the adrenaline type um, chemicals. And there are a bunch of mediators in the brain that the rest of the body do opposite things, but in the brain wake us up. For instance, um, uh, for Glenn and people who know this, uh, acetylcholine and epinephrine usually are opposed chemicals, but in the brain, they all are wake-up chemicals. And um, um, so we have serotonin, dopamine. Um, so uh, these are some of the other uh, – uh, histamine. Histamine wakes us up. That's why antihistamines make us sleepy. So um, that's why the new antihistamines are, are designed so not to get into the brain or to have le- less ability to actually get into the central nervous system. So it's been a very – it's been a fascinating uh, uh, puzzle. To, un, uh, uh, to put together, and they're making great progress in it. It's been, it's, none of the stuff was known when, when, when I was in medical school. It's all new. Right, it is all new. What are some of the misconceptions that people have about sleep that you uh, can correct us on? Okay. Uh, I think the biggest one is that we uh, need less sleep as we get older. Uh, that's wrong. We actually don't need less sleep. We're just able to sleep less well. <laughs> um, so... But we start part of life when we're an infant and a, and a toddler. We do need more sleep, and um, and interestingly, 50% of our, as I said, 50% of our sleep is REM sleep. By the time we get to 22, um, our age of 22 or so, our requirement sleep structure is actually fairly uh, fairly stable. And as life goes on, we get less deep sleep. We're able to get less deep sleep. Um, and but what happens is, whereas when you're eight or nine years old, you sleep, you sleep dead, and when you're awake, you're awake. Nothing can put you to sleep. Even a physics lecture delivered by, by a Hungarian physicist with a thick accent in a dark, warm room wouldn't put an eight-year-old to sleep. Right. Were we well. in the same medical school together? <laughs> I had that professor. Professor, right? <laughs> right. Um, so. If you look around in a college class, college lecture room, 50% after lunch, 50% of the uh, of, of the people in the lecture hall are asleep. All right, so there, and that's because once they get to college, they do everything. The college students do everything wrong. We can go into that. That's actually one of the sleep disorders I will talk about. I can talk about. But um, so an eight-year-old, when the parent, they still have the mistaken notion that they have to listen to their parents. Um, they they actually, you know. They actually, uh, you know, have a regular, you know, regular routine, and the parents, you know, run, a, you know, run a tight ship, and the kids get enough sleep, so everything works great. And the rest of our life, things start to fall apart. The kids, the uh, college students, of course, just do everything wrong, and then, but they're they were otherwise healthy. And as we get older, we start having developing problems. We get put on medicines, and everything uh, starts to. Uh, interfere with the sleep process, you know, work schedules, uh, 
um, and so it, it basically um, basically things do deteriorate, but we still need the same amount of sleep. So you know, you know, my uh, my my wife's mom used to say, "I only need five hours of sleep," and uh, and uh, but she would be sleeping, you know, in between courses at dinner, you know, you know, her head and so we're sleeping in front of TV and so forth. So they're sleeping. They need the amount of sleep. They just can't consolidate it, you know, like you, you can when you're eight or nine years old. So that's really a, that's a big conception. And then the other one, as I mentioned, was that you can train yourself to, to function and be fine with less sleep. That's, that's also a misconception. There are many others too, which, uh, um, any, any, hey Glenn, do you have any, uh, any, any myths that you've heard that you wonder about? Uh, there are many, but I think it's a different show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really interesting because I have to say that, that, um, for whatever it was, um, growing up, my family always wondered how come I wouldn't need as much sleep as everyone else in the family. You know, I have uh, five other siblings and I was the only one after five hours of sleep, I'd be bouncing around like this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like this jumping jelly bean and and yet I would consume more food than any of my siblings and and they would you know so it wasn't and they one they said I had tapeworms two they said that I was on I was on an adrenaline rush and what was I taking <laughs> and literally any more than six hours of sleep that would be my I would like fall almost like I would be lethargic if I got eight hours of sleep, like my brothers, I would be lethargic for the rest of the day. So that was that was something that was very curious. And so would that be a disorder? Well, the the number of people who are truly short sleepers that tr- are truly sleep repleted with five or six hours are actually pretty rare. They probably occur, but um, it's possible. Uh, uh, another possible explanation might have been that your circadian mechanism was set. You got up at a, at a certain time, regardless of how much sleep you got. That's normal. I mean, that that would be good. In other words, if you get up at the same time every day, see, get enough daylight to set your clock, then you were up. And then you may have been just keeping yourself active and stimulated at a time when you should have been sleepy, but were kept yourself going. Kids do it with video games, you know, just just uh, activities which actually make them miss the window of when they're when they're really ready to go to sleep so i think that um and i think that what was happening to you if you'd sleep late you sleeping in then you were in a sense getting into that sleep inertia we were talking about where you were were compensating for your um for your sleep deprivation but you were doing it out of sync with your circadian mechanism so you were so you were a little misaligned um so probably my guess guess is that you not initiating sleep when you should have, but you were getting up according to your well-defined, well-established circadian uh, wake-up time, which is, which is good. So, And then I think you really are on adrenaline because if you don't get enough sleep, you're using your, uh, your flight mechanisms to uh, activate yourself and uh, to, to keep yourself stimulated. And uh, it's, I, I think that kids, for instance, and this is another issue, kids who are um, uh, sleep have a sleep disorder, either not enough sleep or they have disrupted sleep. They will be hyperactive, and they will be often 
directly with as attention deficit disorder. And um, whereas an adult falls asleep, a kid who's sleepy will actually present as a behavioral issue. And so uh, we now know, and it's, it's been well established uh, now that a lot of kids who have been diagnosed with ADHD actually have sleep apnea, um, the most common one from big tonsils. And, um, and uh, uh, so, so I think that uh, my, my caution to general doctors, psychiatrists, and the public in general is that um, when your child is being diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, um, that's fine, but consider a sleep disorder first because Ritalin or a stimulant will certainly uh, combat the sleepiness and make them function better but it's still not a substitute for good sleep. So, um, so I think that that's been a, uh, an area which has been particularly interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, how interesting. I, I must be completely off alignment. First, I have this thing where I, can't, I don't need as much sleep. Then I get diagnosed with apnea as I get older. And now what you're telling me is, is children are diagnosed with apnea as well. Y yes. Um, most, you know, when you look at a kid, you'll notice a young kid, you'll notice one, they have a very small jaw. They have their chin is, you know, it takes a while for the jaw to grow. So that, um, and if you have a kid who perhaps also had had some nasal, um, nasal uh, allergies and so forth, they're mouth breathers. So the palate doesn't form correctly because they're, they're sleeping, breathing with their mouth open because their nose is stuffy. And so the tongue is not, is not serving as a mold to mold the palate. And um, so the teeth get moved around, and then they combine that with big tonsils, and they have obstructive sleep apnea. And some may grow out of it, but a, a lot, a lot don't. And uh, they um, so so I think that more and more dentists and pediatricians need to be uh, aware of this. You know, when we were kids, I think probably when Glenn and I were growing up, everybody had their tonsils taken out. It was a routine. Then they Went the other direction, and I, the nurses in my in the intensive care unit used to come to me and say, "Gee, my my kid snorts and snores and so forth and and so forth." And I took him to the pediatrician, wondering if his tonsils should be taken out. And they said, "Nah, they're fine." And I'd say, "No, they're not fine. <laughs> if you hear him snoring, go to the ENT guy and and and, and take him out. That may not cure it in every kid, but it, it's a it's a start." And so I. Um, I, I, I think that, and a lot of these nurses would tell me that the kid's behavior changed too. And that's been, there was just a study published and, and it hasn't been published, excuse me, it was delivered at a, uh, a meeting where they show they now have neuroimaging, which shows that these kids with ADHD, um, with sleep apnea, uh, and they did uh, both neurocognitive testing and neuroimaging and then treated them and showed the reversal of uh, both of the, you know, improvement in executive function and changes in the brain function once the sleep apnea was uh, corrected. Wow. That's Andy, amazing. That's a real deal. Yeah. Andy, in that one question, you got five wows from Christina. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, I'm always fascinated with children. You know, I'm, I'm always fascinated as, you know, I have a five-year-old, so I watch, you know, and he sleeps by my bed so his bed is connected to my bed so to say and i've watched him since birth 
you know, going through all the wonderful yoga poses <laughs> naturally and watching him sleep. Um, because, you know, again, in my family, allergies and things like that and asthma was very high, you know, ran very high in my family. And um, I, you know, I just watch and make sure that everything is, is great at night and things like that. And if there's any sound or any stoppage, I am there to, to be sensitive to that. And I'm just fascinated by the way they breathe, by the way their stomach breath shifts into the chest, you know, and, and when they're breathing from their mouth and when they're snoring and not. And I just find it fascinating. And when I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, which was like 12 years ago, they were saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm only 110 pounds. <laughs> I'm pretty lean. And at that time, they were questioning why I had it because I wasn't a heavier set person. I mean, now it sounds like the studies have gone so far, the studies that you've been doing, um, Dr. Binder, that is magnificent. But now to hear that it affects children as well, that's like a wow. That's a big wow to me. Well, it, you know, actually, um, the fact is that Asian, that Asians, because of their their facial structure, often do have that are prone to sleep apnea. You know, uh, you you go to Japan um, where nobody's overweight in Japan, and they have a very high prevalence of sleep apnea because of their facial structure. And I had a um, a patient, an Asian man, um, who uh, he must have weighed 98 pounds um, as an engineer, and he had. Uh, his apnea hypopnea index was uh, was 88 per hour, 88 uh, interruptions in his sleep per hour. <laughs> There's another wow. <laughs> do, do sumo wrestlers have uh, apnea? You know, well, they had a double whammy because they uh, because because they're they're they're. Uh, uh, I, they're Japanese and they're overweight, so uh, so yes, I would imagine they do. But I, d I haven't seen the study. I'm sure there's one published out there, but I haven't, I haven't, uh, I don't know it. But um, uh, yeah, it's a. And then of course, then we have the NFL football players. You know, we know. All right, Andy, uh, we've talked about the order of sleep with the cycles, circadian rhythms, homeostasis, and waking and sleeping. Let's get into the disorders. I'd like to know how many disorders are there what's the most common what's the most bizarre and then we'll start talking about diagnosis and treatment but give us a little bit of the disorder of sleep well i i love this field because uh we actually categorize the sleep disorders in six groups and that's a manageable number <laughs> you know in other words it's not overwhelming and it's 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 a it's the way you should approach sleep disorders so they are and this is not in any particular, this is just the way they come to my head. Um, first, there's the most, maybe the most common or prevalent complaint is insomnia. So the, we have a group of insomniacs. Then we have, by contrast, we have the hypersomnias, that's disorders of excessive sleepiness. So we have the insomnias, which are basically defined as difficulty initiating or maintaining sleep. And then we have the hypersomnias, uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. Then we have sleep apneas or the sleep-related breathing disorders, and they come in a, in a range. Then we have the – that's three. Then we have the sleep-related movement disorders. That's restless legs and periodic limb movement disorders and, and a few others, but those are the, the most important ones. These are types of involuntary movements during sleep, which may affect your 
ability to maintain sleep or go to sleep. Then we have the um, circadian rhythm disorders, which we alluded to, and that the most common one would be college students who stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning and can't get out of bed till 12 noon. But others that fall into this category would be like jet lag and shift work. All right. So these are where people are basically living their lives out of alignment with with the, re with the rest of the world or what their what their work or school schedule should be. And then finally, we have the parasomnias. And the parasomnias really uh, are very interesting because these are the un unwanted abnormal behavior during sleep. So sleepwalking. And it comes in a variety. Sleepwalking comes in a variety of uh, flavors. There's REM and non-REM sleepwalking or, or parasomnias. And then you have sleep-related eating. You have uh, all sorts of, uh, uh, and then uh, and and then you have one other one. Well, forget that. So you basically thought that's the sleepwalking, sleep eating, sleep talking, um, and um, sleep eating. Those are all the parasomnias. So that's kind of the the six broad categories within, uh, within them. And that's pretty, you know, once you think about it, it's really easy to, uh, to address it because, you know, typically I see people that almost all of them have at least two, <laughs> at least two. At a, yeah. They almost always have two at a time. Yeah. I think I've lived all six. <laughs> how do you, how do you get, um, sleepwalking in REM sleep if you're paralyzed? Well, that's it. That's exactly it. It's called that. This disorder is called REM sleep behavior disorder. And like, you know, like all of biology and physiology, you have a an established mechanism that's supposed to protect you, and sometimes it doesn't work. So, the the inhibition or the paralysis of the muscles is an active process by the brain. It's a it's it. There's a it's mediated through a chemical called glycine. And basically, it inhibits the lower motor neurons uh, during REM sleep. That's part of the the, the process, um, and it breaks down. Um, so people uh, will act out their dreams, and they can be very. And when they're acting out their dreams, there's kind of a positive feedback. So the dreams get more and more vivid and more and more active. So they'll be punching, and and they'll they'll be you know reenacting, you know, fights and, 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 and their bed partners will think that they're sleeping next to, um, you know, a, a serial killer or something. Right? Uh, uh, and, and it's, and it's there, you know, the person may be this most mild mannered, easygoing person at night, they have these violent dreams. So this concern and this, the initial thinking was, was this psychological? Was this a, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, which often it gets misdiagnosed. And, um, you have to dis distinguish it from seizures, but it's actually, it actually is a, it's not the best. And I here's where the audience may get a little bit um, concerned. It's actually when it shows up in uh, late or middle age, and it's more common in men. It's often a precursor and can actually precede the onset of uh, neurologic disorders by 10 years. Most commonly, Parkinson's disease. So, so. When you see it, you it, you're kind of as a physician, sleep doctor. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit um, in a bind because I don't want to tell the person. Oh, by the way, 
you know, you may develop Parkinson's disease in 10 years. So I, but if I don't tell them, they're going to look it up on the internet and find that out. So I have to tread very carefully about that. But you have to distinguish it from seizures and some medications. A lot of the antidepressant medicines, um, in fact, most of them, sometimes uh, are associated. In other words, it, it, it becomes evident once they get started on those medicines. And we never know. We're not sure. Is it really unmasking a disorder causing it? And that's a, that's a debate and a controversy that we don't have an answer to yet. But um, frequently, somebody gets started on an SSRI like Prozac or it's or the son of Prozac, any of those medicines and um, uh, effects or and they start having th this behavior and it, it correlates with when they started it. So um, it's a uh, but it's something that physicians need to know and it is very different. But you have to do you do have to do a sleep study um, to make sure that it's not a seizure and um, uh, make that distinction and make sure that it's really not regular sleepwalking, which occurs out of non-REM sleep, which is more of a confusional arousal. It's a partial awakening where you wake up half and you do things you don't remember. The people with REM sleep behavior, they know they're acting out their dreams. They wake up and they said, oh, I thought I was somebody trying to fight me. Do you know when you dream, all of you have experienced, I think, a dream where you're trying to accomplish something and you can't get it done. There's a certain frustration and that's because paralysis. That's because you can't run fast enough because your muscles won't move. So you're trying to move, you just can't, like the dog is twitching. Um, and a nightmare, a nightmare is also a parasomnia. A nightmare is just a dream gone bad. Um, you know, part of it, um, it, part of the REM sleep physiology um, is actually sexual arousal. In men, this is much more obvious, but this is where tumescence right? And um, so, uh, and that's, and so dreams will often have a, may have a, a sexual content, but because of the paralysis of your intercostal muscles, the breathing muscles, when you're when you're in dream sleep, the only muscle that breathing is your is your diaphragm. Your normal chest muscles aren't working, and so. Um, so you, people sense a, a weight on their chest, and they can't breathe, and they feel often, and then they may feel they're being uh, uh, attacked, sexually attacked. And in, in art, you'll see the um, uh, the uh, incubus and the succubus. Those are demons, which are portrayed in paintings of a demon sitting on the woman's chest or or the male chest. The incubus and succubus are the male and female versions of it, and that's. And, and, and that's actually a, an artistic rendering of a nightmare, basically, and it all relates to the actual physiology of REM sleep. Hmm. We, uh, we had a uh, conversation with Robbie Bosnack, and we talked about dreams and dream work. Uh, it would be interesting to have both of you on to talk together about the dream process. <clears throat> um, so, so now people are out there, and people are hearing about sleep problems and sleep disorders. How does someone, if they don't have a partner, uh, or if they do have a partner, how does someone figure out that they should go to a sleep medicine physician? And what happens when you do see a sleep medicine physician? Tell us a little bit about how you how you work in the sleep clinic. Okay, that's a. I'm glad. I am glad you asked that. Um, first of all, as I mentioned earlier on, if you're excessively sleepy. And it's not obvious why you're sleepy because you think you're getting enough sleep. Um, then you have a sleep disorder, and you should add, they, that 
that individual should request from their physician a referral to a sleep physician, not a sleep study. I really would want to uh, discourage the practice of going from a primary physician to a sleep test, a sleep study, sleep lab. They should go to see a sleep physician first. Now, um, so that's the first thing. So if you're sleepy and tired, I always say there are three kinds of tiredness. There's tiredness as in being sleepy. There's tiredness being physically unable to do exertion, like you get tired going up a hill or climbing stairs. And then there's everything else, the tiredness of, uh, you know, just no motivation, uh, just not wanting to get out of bed. Now, these three kinds of tiredness are not mutually exclusive. Um, you can have all three, but they're very, the etiologies, the cause of these three are very different, and the treatments are different. So you need to pin it down and dissect it. So if a person is sleepy, that is, they can and will take a nap given the opportunity, then they're sleepy. And um, sometimes the explanation is very obvious, like they're just not getting enough sleep, they're just, uh, or they're doing shift work. But if they don't have an obvious explanation, then you need to find it. So that's the first that's the first symptom. The second symptom of sleep complaints is, of course, insomnia, people who just say they have a hard time sleeping. And I will also uh, caution people to realize that sometimes when they're sleeping during the day, they assume they have insomnia, and they will come to, to see me saying that they can't sleep at night. But in fact, they sleep fine. They're not... They, if they wake up during the night, they go back to sleep quickly. They, their problem is that they're sleeping when they wake up, and so they assume that they're not sleeping well at night. And that may be true, but that's not insomnia. So, so insomnia is another complaint which um, has very multiple uh, issues related with insomnia, mood disorders, and so forth. This is probably our most difficult uh, disorder to, to, to treat. Um, but... Uh, the other reason to go to, to seek out help is if you don't know if you have a problem and nobody's witnessed it, but if you're at high risk. So think about the associated symptoms or associated conditions with sleep apnea. Um, often, and again, uh, uh, hosts uh, uh, exception, but often weight, overweight, um, high blood pressure, Getting up at night to urinate, acid, ref acid reflux or acid indigestion, um, decrease in sexual interest or function. Those are all those are all symptoms not of middle age, but actually of sleep apnea. Now they're not that's not the only cause of it, but those are common medical complaints, and every one of those is is associated with uh, sleep apnea. And the other group would be the people or Glenn who have um, who have unexplained atrial fibrillation. In other words, they don't have known heart disease, they haven't had a heart attack, they don't have a bad heart valve, but they present suddenly an otherwise healthy person that develops atrial fibrillation, then you should think about sleep apnea as, as a possible cause. So even if they don't have obvious symptoms except for those other, those other uh, associated symptoms, they should at least consider it and, 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 see a, uh, and perhaps see a sleep physician and, and then uh, see if it's worthwhile to do a sleep study. Tell us about the sleep study. Okay. Well, 
the sleep study is uh, usually done, uh, although I'll talk about the home studies, but the sleep study is usually done in a sleep center or sleep laboratory, and the patient will come in, um, and I advise the patients, except under specific circumstances, whatever medication they're taking, they should continue taking, even if they're taking sleeping medicines. I um, uh, We want them to study them as they are in the real world. And they come to the sleep center, and we hook up a lot of electrodes on their brain, I mean, on their not on their brain, excuse me, on their scalp, <laughs> and uh, uh, reading their brain waves. And we also have uh, sensors uh, around the eyes so we can detect their eye movements. And then we have electrodes around their chin, their face, so we can see um, their muscle tone of their chin. And then we have sensors around their chest and their abdomen um, to sense when their chest and abdomen are moving. They're wearing a little uh, cannula to register when air is moving in and out of their nose and their mouth. Uh, that usually measures pressure, sometimes also temperature. And then we have an oximeter, which is a little device that is usually hooked to the ear or the finger um, that basically through the skin can detect the level of oxygen in your blood. Then we have electrodes on your, on your legs to, to detect a muscle movement. But all these things are bundled in such a fashion um, as to be amazingly surprisingly unobtrusive. So the patients, some of them feel they can't move, but if the technician does the job right, the patients can move, roll over, do everything. And But the technician's there if they happen to pull off an electrode and can, can replace it. And if the patient has to get up at night to go to the bathroom, there's a quick disconnect harness, which they can disconnect, go to the bathroom, get back, and just don't have to reapply all the electrodes. And we basically watch them for, you know, seven, seven to eight hours. And, um, uh, and and see if they have disrupted breathing and, or if they have some other abnormal movements, seizures, things like that. And if, if they have severe sleep apnea in the middle of the night, once we've established that that is their problem, um, the technician has a protocol where they will actually apply uh, the first-line treatment for sleep apnea, and that's that pressured device called continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP or some derivation of CPAP to see if they can correct it. So we call that a split night study. Um, sometimes we have to do it in two separate nights. Sometimes we can do it in one night. Um, you recognize, as I mentioned, sleep is not symmetrical. The first part of the night is dominated by deep non-REM sleep. And the second half of the night is dominated by lighter non-REM and REM sleep. And it turns out sleep apnea gets worse the second half of the night. So sometimes you don't see much sleep apnea in the first part of the night, and it shows up the second half of the night, and therefore you can't apply. Uh, you don't have time to apply CPAP. So that's kind of a quick overview of, uh, of the sleep study. We don't usually do sleep studies routinely for insomnia. We only do, we only do that after the initial treatment and behavioral changes uh, don't work for insomnia, then we'll, then we'll go ahead and see if we're missing. So you can bring your blankie if you have to to your sleep uh, clinic. Someone sleeps with their own little blankie or their wimpy or something or their teddy bear. They can bring that, right? Yes, we encourage them to bring their favorite pillow, their teddy bear, and so forth. The only thing we don't let them bring is their spouse. <laughs> okay, so uh, – Melatonin, lemon balm, L-theanine, valerian extract, hops extract, zero-gravity beds, uh, adjustment beds. Do these work? Are they good? 
What should we think about? Okay. Well, I'm going to start with melatonin. Melatonin is the mediator, and I, um, and I, I can't believe I failed to, to, uh, to mention this when I talked about the circadian rhythm. The modulators of our circadian rhythm are daylight and melatonin. Uh, sunlight inhibits our pineal gland from secreting melatonin. So darkness encourages uh, the secretion of melatonin. So melatonin is both a weak, a weak hypnotic, and it's also our timekeeper. It basically, so when we have patients who are blind and are unable to, unable to synchronize their clock with the of light on the retina going through the normal pathways through the suprachiasmatic nucleus, um, we, um, we actually, will you give the blind people melatonin at a particular time. So if you want to synchronize somebody to uh, go to bed at 11 o'clock and wake up at 7 a.m., that would correspond to a very low dose of melatonin. I'm talking like a half a milligram to a milligram. Um, uh, you give that at around 8 p.m. And that will, and in the blind patients, uh, over time, that, that will entrain their circadian clock to an 11-7, 11-7 schedule. So, um, it's, so melatonin has its use, I think, as a timekeeper. It's, a, it's relatively weak as a, um, as a hypnotic. Um, but a valerian has been studied and uh, probably is, is a very weak hypnotic. The other ones, I don't have enough information on those. I hear stories, anecdotes, and so forth. But um, um, I always point out that if there was a great sleeping medication, a great hypnotic, we wouldn't have so many, right? There would only yeah. So we don't have great. We don't have a great. Uh, we don't have great hypnotic. They all have their their pluses and minuses, and they have their uses, and they have their abuses. So um, so I think that um, they very few of them ever work successfully long-term without making other changes in the person's uh, uh, behaviors and uh, habits. Is there a harm in taking melatonin every day? Uh, I don't th it's a good, it's a, it's somewhat an unanswerable question. I think that a low dose melatonin taken every day is fine. Um, but as I said, you should take it at the appropriate time because that's, that is appropriate to your uh, schedule. Now, if you have no trouble with sleep and you keep a regular schedule and you take it right at bedtime, it's probably not doing much because your body's already secreting a lot of melatonin. And um, there was some concern at very high doses that it may have um, it may have some effect on the uh, on the, the gonadotropin, the uh, uh, the testosterone uh, in particular. So that is un that is unclear right now. But its um, its structure has you know it it, it is a uh, a neuro you know it's structured as a as a neuro uh, uh, a neurotransmitter and um, and therefore it can have there can be some overlap with it but I think in low dose it's probably safe uh, and I think it has a real use in helping people um, I use it a lot to try to help people realign their uh, their uh, their sleep wake schedule uh, there's some very uh, complicated schemes for how to use it for to help with jet lag and things like that traveling that's fairly complicated actually uh, uh, the circadian 
the circadian mechanism, how to intervene and modulate it is actually very um, tricky. And it's usually, ne it's often neglected even by my colleagues in the sleep field. It's uh, misalignment of the circadian rhythm is really um, very frequent as a as part of the etiology of insomnia. And, and, and I guess the way to say that is people who have, have to get up early for work uh, on the weekday and then they get their sleep deprived because of the demands of their busy life, um, they sleep late on weekends. So it really screws up their circadian mechanism. And so they, uh, they, so they, if they sleep to nine or 10, and, but they, during the weekday, they have to get up at 6 a.m., um, then they can't go to sleep at night at, you know, at 10 because their body really thinks they shouldn't be going to sleep till midnight. And the body, that circadian mechanism is an alerting mechanism. It actually, that so-called second wind, just when you're supposed to be, think you should be going to sleep, suddenly you get a burst of energy. And that's, be, that's, that's your circadian mechanism in action, which gets its strongest before it starts to recede. And uh, that's a big problem. So you have to kind of uh, address that. And it's very tough to get people to change their habits. It's very hard to talk somebody out um, of... Um, changing, you know, taking away their ability to sleep late and try to do it to your kids. Wait, just wait until you have a teenager. I got to tell you, my, my girls were, my girls were swimmers and come the summer, they wanted to stay up late and, and on the one, you know, they'd want to sleep late. But fortunately the coach was the bad guy. Uh, so I only had, I only had to be the heavy, um, uh, you know, for part of the year on the uh, summers, but, uh, but it's a it is a major battle with the kids. You're not saying you're not saying that uh, having children is a sleep disorder, are you? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole other category. Listen, Andy, uh, with all of my guests, uh, our guests, we always ask a health tip that you can share with us. Something from your uh, experience and your expertise. Do you have something you'd like to share with us today? Well. Uh, uh, the first thing, I guess, maybe two things. One is that, um, um, you know, you read in all the self-help magazines how it's important to have a regular sleep-wake schedule. People interpret that meaning they should go to sleep at the same time and wake up at the same time. Go to sleep when you're sleep uh, when you're sleepy, and hopefully give yourself enough opportunity to get sleepy. But you should wake up at the same time by the clock because you have to reset your clock every morning. So going to sleep by the clock can just be a frustration because you're, you may not be sleepy because for whatever reason, and going, getting in bed and not falling asleep is just frustrating and uh, creates anxiety and frustration. Whereas, but you should get up at the same time. And, and, and if you had a short night because of you were up late for whatever reason, my recommendation is either make it up by going to bed earlier the next night when you're and you crash in bed or take a short nap during the day but not don't sleep in oh that's interesting that's a great tip because i was that was on my mind like how what am i going to ask you well look can, can you see glenn on the screen he's um he's decided to take a nap on us <laughs> i do that to a lot of people i put them to sleep but um but I, uh, the second tip um, really is, uh, I mentioned it before, if you think you have a sleep problem, don't let your doctor send you to a sleep study. Uh, encourage them to send you to a sleep doctor. Uh, because I think that a sleep study without some um, evaluation of 
why you're doing the sleep study um, is often going to be uh, misleading or, or frustrating. For instance, I've had people sent to the sleep lab um, directly, and they were they were uh, they were shift workers. So they so they normally are awake at night. So so you want to know those things before you, you go to the sleep lab because uh, because they're not going to be able to sleep. You're going to have to make some accommodation. And and we used to do that. We actually sometimes for our people who are truly night people, not not just a, a swing shift, but graveyard shift. You know, um, who really were truly night you know, night workers, day sleepers, um, we actually would do some sleep studies, full-on nighttime sleep studies during the day. We were set up to do that. I would like to uh, thank our very special guest, Dr. Andrew Binder, for sharing his expertise and wisdom with us. I would also thank uh, all of my healers and educators and teachers throughout my life. I look forward to sharing another uh, adventure in the healthcare galaxy next week. And until next week, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Dr. Binder. It was uh, a lot of fun. We have to get you back. 